welcome to Try Talking Sport, hosted by me, Joanne Murphy. Whether you are an athlete, adventurer, endurance enthusiast, or simply have an interest in sport, you have come to the right place for inspiration, encouragement, motivation, and a little bit of entertainment. This is our 40th episode of the podcast. Yes, 40th episode. I am thrilled to still be going strong with the show and bringing some incredible stories from the world of endurance sport to you. I have had so much fun chatting with a diverse range of people from across the world to date with lots more chatting and talking to be done in the coming weeks and months. Thank you to everyone who has continued to tune in from the very start or indeed our recent Try Talking Sport listeners who have caught up with the previous episodes. It's great to have you all with us. It looks like the global pandemic isn't going anywhere soon and if you are living in Ireland, well, you will be well aware that we are now in what has been called Lockdown 2.0 with the introduction of the highest level of living with COVID restrictions in place for the next six weeks. Now, this hasn't come as a surprise to many, but nevertheless, it is not an easy pill to swallow. There's lots of anxiety, stress, worry, a sense of helplessness, a sense of loss, and a big sense of fear. And with all that's going on around us, that's out of our control, we can lose our appetite for fun and adventure. Our motivation mojo can fall apart and we may not find it easy to have a reason to smile every day. But we do need to find something, just one thing, no matter who we are or where we are. We need to find something that makes us smile, that brings a sparkle to our eyes and simply gives us joy even if it's only for a fleeting few moments each day. What will you do to make yourself smile today? I can tell you, listening to this episode with Mark Allen is certainly going to make you laugh, so there's a good start. There is no doubt that exercise, sport and physical activity these days is more important than ever. Pools, gyms, leisure centres may be closed, but why not get outside if you can? Embrace the wind, the rain and go play in the puddles if that's what will make you happy and put a smile on your face. In the current climate, fun is as important as fitness as we embark on the next few weeks of restrictions. Release and reset some of your training goals. Don't be so hard on yourself if you are not hitting the numbers you wanted in your training session. Instead, leave your watch at home and just get outside for the fun of it. Look around you and take in the colours that are everywhere. Find a new route within your 5k radius and embrace this time to enjoy your training because amidst everything that is completely outside of our control today, this is one thing we can control and gives us a sense of purpose and achievement in each day. If you haven't been training and have lost your mojo, now is the time to really start looking after yourself and take some time to try something new just for the fun of it. I'm not talking about going on a porridge bread baking binge or running an ultra marathon next week for the first time but maybe there is something that you can take time to try now that you never had the time or the energy for before. We might be stuck at home for the most part but now might be just the time to get cracking on expanding your horizons and opportunities from your home. Speaking of fun and adventure, you will see from my social pages, I'm still getting into Galway Bay every day. The time in the water has dropped along with the air and the water temperature, but I can tell you, bouncing around in the sea for a few minutes each day, screeching and laughing is something that brightens up even the darkest of days. In the midst of an ever-changing world, the sea is the one powerful constant that puts a smile on my face. And if I'm honest, each day when I get out of the water, I have a real sense of achievement. It's bizarre, but it's true. Now, it does take a while for my toes to warm up, but it's worth it. And the coffee after the swim always tastes great. A little salty, but great. 
I'm also Zwifting at least three times a week, enjoying the training sessions, the social spins and the tough races, which, although I often want to quit halfway through, I quite enjoy the feeling of the sweat rolling down my face and my legs after giving it 100% effort. Believe it or not, after I've cooled down by lying on the cold kitchen tiles, I'm usually smiling and buzzing. Now, if only I could get out the door to do a bit more running, but that's next week's goal. In the meantime, our Zwift ride on a Monday night with the Park Tri crew is growing in popularity. Monday night this week, we had 88 riders spinning around the virtual streets of London. There was plenty of fun and banter for the 28k ride. Be sure to follow Joanne Murphy, Try Talking Sport, on the companion app and keep an eye on our social pages for the details of the next spin, which is open to everyone regardless of fitness or cycling ability. Now to this week's guest. Most of you who are interested in triathlon will have heard of Mark Allen. And even if you are not engaged in the sport, you more than likely will have heard of the Iron War of 1989 between Mark Allen and his biggest rival on the island at the time, Dave Scott. Mark Allen is a name synonymous with triathlon and Ironman in particular. The six-time Ironman world champion is one of the greatest athletes of all time and a living legend. His triathlon career spanned 15 seasons. In that time, he had many successes in sport, winning the first ever ITU Triathlon World Championships in 1989. He also won the Nice Triathlon 10 times consecutively, something he considers to be one of his greatest achievements. He had a 20-race winning streak from 1988 to 1990, which is simply incredible. He first dipped his toe in Ironman racing in 1982, going up against the best in the world at the time, Dave Scott. It took Mark multiple attempts until 1989 to finally become the world champion for the very first time, beating Dave Scott to the finish by a mere 58 seconds. Mark's Ironman journey and that of Iron War have been covered extensively and widely. So in this episode, we chat about his career and life generally and shoot the breeze in what at times felt more like a chat over coffee with a friend than an interview with the man who was voted ESPN's greatest endurance athlete of all time. He has also been voted the greatest American triathlete of all time, not to mention he is a member of the Ironman Hall of Fame, the USAT Hall of Fame and ITU Hall of Fame. Mark shares lots of insight to his fascinating journey in sport, but I think more importantly, he shares insight into the mindset of a champion with lots of nuggets of advice and practical lessons that we can all take away and use in our daily lives, regardless of our sporting aspirations and goals. And now more than ever, we can all do with an injection of inspiration that we can use daily to keep us both motivated and mindful in these turbulent times. You will also get to meet Tommy Buscott in this episode, a hilarious character who really doesn't take life very seriously and I think should have his own show. I let Mark tell you how Tommy came to be. Enjoy the show. So much for joining me today. It looks like it's an absolutely stunning day in the US of A. We had some sunshine in Galway today, but I'm sure it didn't hit the temperatures in Santa Cruz. Yeah, we've actually had a very hot week this past week. Unusual for October. By now, it's normally turning into definitely fall. I mean, the, the leaves are, are gone from a lot of the trees already, but it was baking. I was in my shorts all week, which is so so wild. Anyway, I went for uh, just like a, an 11 mile jog through some of the trails right near my house through a little forest that I live. I live actually two blocks from the ocean and my my go to sport these days is, is actually surfing. I love doing that. I've I've surfed, I don't know, over 40 years now, almost 45 years, actually. 
I'm nowhere near as good of a surfer as I was as a triathlete, but I, I think I enjoy it a heck of a lot more. You know, it's like you're out there in the water. It's it's stress relief. It's cardio. It's it's my yoga. You know, you're, you're stretching in every direction. It's it's time in nature. It's it's, you know, just hanging out with all, all the whole crew that you get to know who surfs in, in the same place all the time. And yeah, it combines a lot of stuff. So I, I, I surf, uh, I run, I do a little bit of functional strength work. I ride on Zwift, as I know you do. And uh, yeah, I just, you know, I'm 62. And, and um, one, of, one of my passions actually has been, since I turned 50, was trying to figure out how do I stay vibrant and healthy and, and moving and keep my brain working and all of that stuff as I get older? Because it seems like people have this this image like you're kind of under 50 and you're still young or you're over 50 and you're geriatric, you know, and it's like there is a big stretch of 20 or 30 or 40 years where you're not geriatric. Maybe you're not going to win, you know, the 100 meter dash in the Olympics, but you can still be active and strong and healthy. And so that's kind of what I've been really trying to dial in the last, you might say, 12 years, actually. So. And if ever there was a time to dial in all of that, now is the time as COVID-19 has pretty much stopped the world from turning in both your world and my world across our passion for triathlon. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, the people I, I coach at Mark Allen Coaching, they, in the beginning of, of the pandemic last March, a lot of them were ready to just throw in the towel and, and stop training. They thought, you know, I don't have a race. Why should I, why am I going to be putting in all of this time? And I said, you know, hold on now. <laughs> you know, let's let's see if there's maybe a, another reason that has meaning to you to to stay fit and healthy and to train and you know just see see how good you feel because you get out there and you swim and you bike and you run and you do your stretching, you do your strength work and people finally realized, yeah, you know, it's fun to have that magnet or that dream or that goal of a race to set a PR or, or you know to do a top placing or qualify for like something like the Ironman. But at the same time, it's just that satisfaction and that health benefit you get from just exercising day in and day out. That That's really the gold that, that, that everybody has really seen during the pandemic. Now, that is what makes all of these sports so worthwhile. It's, it's just that, you know, your body feels good. It, it takes the stress away. It gives you a break from having to think about the pandemic and all the things you maybe you can't do. And so the kind of the mantra or the focus that, that I've had with my athletes in the past 10 months or whatever it is, eight months, nine months, is to, to you know, try as best as you can to turn away from focusing on the things that you cannot do and ask yourself, what can I do? You know, okay, I can't go to a pool, so maybe I can open water swim. Maybe it's just stretch cords. You know, I can't, get together with my group, but maybe we can do a virtual ride together. Or, you know, there's so many creative options and maybe they're not your first choice, but to at least have a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth choice, you know, we can still keep going and, and you know, kind of hold ourselves up and go, yeah, at the end of the day, yeah, I, hey, I got a good workout in and that's perfect. You know, it was only 30 minutes and it wasn't my five hour ride with 20 people, but so what, you know? 
And I think it's well, it's all about having that sense of purpose and a bit of a routine. I know myself, I've lived in Galway on the west coast of Ireland for 16 years. And this is the first time I have ever embraced the sea. I live two kilometres from it. And other than the times I was training to do a 70.3 distance race or do uh, an Ironman or whatever, I've never really embraced it. But now I love it. I nearly am addicted to it that I have to go every day and it's my daily dip. But it's like my sanctuary. It's like for Irish people years ago going, to mass on a Sunday it was habit it's regular and it's not about the swimming it's actually about getting into the water and feeling free and like you've accomplished something even if it's five minutes or 15 minutes whatever works for people but your description at the start about your surfing is actually very close to that it's just about having a purpose and having something to do it's almost like trying to find a new hobby in the midst of a pandemic or do something different instead of swim bike and run competitively it's do something different and have fun with it yeah and and you know you can also something that I've done during this time is to to set my own goals of something personal that I want to do that maybe I haven't done for a while like I retired from uh, competition in 1996 and I raced 15 seasons as a triathlete you know very really pushing my body and, and trying to extract every little second I could out of my genetics and when I retired I, I just kind of said you know I, I really need to back things down and to honor the fact that I have had a big ask of my body and then trying to kind of try to figure out what's the level of exercise I can do that's sustainable for a lifetime. You know, peak performance and life health are, are not necessarily always in the same basket. You know, when you're when you are pushing your body to the very limit of what you're capable of, you're just you're you're so close to that line where if you go over it, you start to get injured or sick or burned out or, you know, you just can't sustain that level. So anyway, um, I actually, since I retired, hadn't really done it much significant running. I mean, for me, like 5K run, three miles or whatever, that's plenty, you know. I mean, I'll surf for a couple hours, but running was, I pretty much cut it way back. And during the pandemic, I was, um, I reflected back about when I turned 50, 12 years ago. Um, when I turned 50, I said, I want to run 10 miles, like nonstop, you know, which people probably go, well, you're an Ironman, you know, that should be really easy for you. Well, I haven't done that in so many years. And so I realized, wait a minute, it's 12 years since I said I want to run 10 miles and I haven't. And so I just slowly built up and then I went out one one uh, weekend day and I ran 10 miles and the next weekend I ran 11 and then I ran 12 and then I ran 14 and a half. And I hadn't done this in 24 years you know, and, and it wasn't impressive. You know, I wasn't setting I wasn't setting any world's records, but I was just out there and it was so gratifying uh, and exciting to see that, you know, I could just come up with something that sounded kind of fun and crazy and just go for it and build up to it and do it. And so that's, you know, that's something else that a lot of athletes are doing now instead of racing. They're they're finding these just fun little personal gems that they want to do. Maybe they want to, you know, there's a big trail that you never have run on before up a mountain that you want to go, well, go for it now. You know, it doesn't matter if it fits into some ideal training plan because if you modify it and you do something different, it doesn't matter. There's no race that's going to, it's going to impact any, in any way. So um, just like you said, mixing it up and finding something new swimming in the ocean amazing you know that cold water a lot of people go oh you know santa cruz is so cold it's it's not quite as cold as ireland but it's it's right up there you know it never you're always in a full full wetsuit all year round i love it 
just because it's like it it wakes up your spirit when you get in that water and, and I know that feeling like you get kind of addicted to that you have that and a cup of coffee you're invincible <laughs> <laughs> well this is it and you mentioned two things there so we're going to get straight into um, chatting about your sporting career because you mentioned spirit there and I think of spirit I think of Kona I think of Mark Allen and the legacy you've left behind and the island that you've inspired so many people over the years but before we talk about Kona about 1989 and the Iron War the greatest race ever run uh, as what it's known for those of you who are listening into the show you know, Mark Allen is a legend of the sport of triathlon, but we're going to talk about your background in sport, Mark. As a child growing up, were you sporty? Did you have a bike? Could you run? I know you could swim. You describe yourself in many interviews as only a, a mediocre swimmer, but I don't think I would agree with that. But as a youngster, were you sporty? Were you kicking a football, throwing a football, playing baseball? Was that part of your life? Or where did this spirit of sport come from? Well, I don't know if, if they do this in Ireland, but here in the U.S., like when kids would get together uh, and you would be like uh, in elementary school or, or even junior high school and, and you'd, you'd have all the kids lined up and there'd be two team captains and they'd trade off picking people to be on their team for football or basketball or baseball or whatever it was. I was, I was always like last or second to last to be picked because I just didn't have, I didn't have any kind of natural talent when it came to sports that, that had, uh, you know, a ball involved, actually. And, uh, and so I never really thought that I had any kind of capability to be anything great in sport. And then I, I did start swimming when I was 10 years old. I, I saw the, the Mexico City Olympics on television. And the, and the part of it, the sport that really just boggled my mind was the, the distance swimmers. You know, the, back then, the men were swimming 1,500 meters the longest, and the women were swimming 800 meters back before they figured out that women can swim just as far as a guy. <laughs> and, uh, but for me, you know, to go 25 meters, one lap of a pool was uh, almost, it was like a near death experience, you know, cause I could barely make it. And so to see these swimmers going back and forth, I was, it just blew me away. And shortly after I saw that on television, Mexico city Olympics, 1968, I, there was a, an ad in the local paper where I was growing up in Palo Alto, California. The swim team was having tryouts. And I thought, and my mom goes, why don't you go and just see? You love watching the swimmers. And so I went and I was actually able to swim like a couple laps. And that was really surprising. And so I swam from the time competitively, from the time I was 10 all the way through university. But I really was mediocre in the sense that I, I never qualified for Olympic trials or the national championships or anything like that. I mean, which actually was kind of interesting, you know, as you fast forward to this time now in COVID, because since I was never going to win some big race, um, I had to find things that, that had meaning to me to keep swimming all those years. And the thing that was just so exciting for me was to set a personal best, you know, to go a couple seconds, a hundred faster in a hundred meters or 200 back or whatever it was. And so my purpose for doing sports had nothing to do with this big glory. It had to do with that little glory that nobody else is going to see or really understand, but I, I could feel that satisfaction. And so, you know, during this time when there are no races, there's still the the possibility to do your own sort of personal bests on some level. 
you know, maybe it's maybe it's not even to do with the time, but maybe figuring out how to move more efficiently on, on, in your running stro- stride or you working on your stroke mechanics so that you take less strokes per lap in the pool or whatever it is. You know, all those little personal benchmarks can be really satisfying and fulfilling, and they have nothing to do with having to go to to a race and, and have, you know, some, you know, first place finish come across. So fast forward to, I was going to say 21 years later to 1989, but we're going to take a little step back to 1982, maybe. Your first time in Kona, what happened in between those college years and then 1982, where you decided you were going to rock up and do Ironman Kona? Yeah, I had a, I had a two-year period there where I wasn't really doing anything. I graduated from university in, in 1980, and I was I was actually lifeguarding on the beaches in San Diego at the time. And so, you know, my lifestyle was pretty active. I was out outdoors and, and, you know, swimming in the ocean and surfing. And, you know, I do a little bit of jogging on the beach, but not much, N- not not anything to certainly not to try to do a race. And so anyway, I saw the Ironman on television, you know, another one of those sort of sporting turning points for me. 1982, February, it was the, that amazing race where. Julie Moss and Kathleen McCartney had their dramatic one-two finish, um, and I, I just, again, it blew me away. Like, how can how can somebody go that far, that that long without stopping? It just was mind-boggling. But uh, about two weeks after I saw that race on television, I thought I have to go there and see if I can cross that finish line. You know, it just it just mesmerized me and drew me in, and I could feel a big island like you have to come here, you know? And so uh, nine months later, eight months later, whatever it was, I was on the start line of the Ironman. And I, back then there were no coaches. There were, there was no resource that you could look at to figure out how to train. I just kind of looked at what cyclists did to get fit for bike races. And I knew what the swimmers did. And, and I kind of got a marathon training plan somewhere out of a magazine or something and was just sort of patchworking everything together and uh, showed up at the start line, ended up actually coming out of the water right behind Dave Scott. He was first and I was second. Um, and I thought, I thought, well, these triathletes must not be that good as swimmers, you know? And, and so I, I, I kind of, I was excited, but I just, you know, I didn't think anything of it. And then halfway through the bike ride, I was still with Dave and he was, he was the best guy in the world at the time. He was in 1982 in October he had won the Ironman once, and he was coming back hoping to win his second title. And, uh, you know, halfway through the ride, I was getting pretty excited, to say the least. You know, here I am, first Ironman, I'm with the best guy, you know. And so I'd never talked to him. And so I pulled up next to him, and I, I was pedaling. I kind of go, hey, Dave, uh, when we're done with the bike, you want to go for a run? And he's like, who are you? You know, it's like... I was like this little gnat, you know, this little fly. Like, and anyway, so he just he clicked his bike into a big gear and he took off, and I and I clicked my bike into a big gear to follow him. And I heard this massive like grinding and clanking, and I looked down and my derailleur had broken off of my bike and was dragging on the ground. And so my race was done. You know, I couldn't I couldn't even complete the ride. So I didn't achieve that initial dream of you know just going to the Ironman once crossing the finish line and then moving on with my life. But being with Dave for, for you know, the first hours of racing, I thought maybe maybe I have uh, a chance if I really take my time and develop my fitness and experience as a triathlete, maybe I can win this race. You know, the, that little seed was planted. 
Can I just ask, Mark, for clarification, was this your first ever triathlon? I know it was your first Ironman, but had you raced previously? You know, that year in 1982, there was a series of short Olympic distance races, uh, United States Triathlon Series that started. Their very first one was in uh, June in North San Diego County, where I lived. So I did that event. That was my first triathlon. And then I did uh, another one of that series in Los Angeles. Uh, I finished fourth overall in the first race. I finished third in the second one. And then in my third race, late in August, there was a half Ironman distance race in San Diego. And I actually won it. And I beat a couple of the big guns at the time, Scott Tinley and Scott Molina. And, uh, you know, that was a that was a real groundbreaking event for me because I I just went for it. I just went as hard as I could the whole way and came off the bike ahead of those guys. And they're both really, really good runners. And I just like kept sprinting as hard as I could. I figured they're going to catch me any second now. And I uh, kept getting time splits and they were getting further behind. And I thought people were not calculating right. Like, there's no way I'm running away from Scott Molina and Scott Tinley, you know. But I did, and I beat him. And so those were three triathlons that I did. And then in October was the Ironman, my fourth race. And and to be honest, you know, even though I was up there with Dave on the bike, I can look back now and pretty much guarantee that had we come off the bike together, I would have completely exploded and blown up because as you know i i had an, a bunch of those even with a few years of, of experience behind me so but it's still it was still that inspiration of like wow maybe you know maybe all those years of swimming built a cardiovascular engine that is working really well and now i'm in a sport where i actually have you know the right leverage and the right range of motion and all those things to swim bike and run as opposed to just being a swimmer if you look at the the guys on the on the blocks in finals of swimming, you know, they're gigantic. You know, they're tall. They're, they've got this incredible shoulder flexibility that I don't have. Their knees bend backwards. Their feet are as big as flippers. You know, I don't have any of those. Um, but I had fun with it. You know, and that was the most important thing. All I can see are your hands going. And I'm like, he's got big hands, like big paddles of hands. No wonder he was a good swimmer. <laughs> Hell, he's got... <laughs> He's got monster hands. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> those things are dangerous. Tommy Buzzcott is coming out there now. Hang on, I have to get my train of thought back. So where were we? Oh, yeah, so we were 1982. Dave Scott won that year. You reckon you'd have blown up uh, if you'd come off the bikes together and, and done the marathon. It was 1989 before you finally got that top position and ran down the finish line as the world champion. What happened in those intervening years? Yeah, the you know, the short version of the story is that I raced Ironman six different years uh, from 1982 through 1988. And each one of those years, I either raced fairly conservatively and didn't blow up, but was never in the mix for the championship, you know, for the lead and the win, or I really went for it and I completely blew up. I couldn't find the right solution. You know, I finished, I finished second twice. I finished third once. I finished fifth twice. I could be in the lead at the end of the bike, I could be in the lead halfway through the marathon. I could be in the lead with, you know, three or four miles to go in the marathon. But I always fell apart and Dave Scott always passed me. And so and, and you have to understand, you know, each of these years that I went there, those six years, you know, I was basically devoting my entire year to ultimately trying to put together a great Ironman in October. So my entire year was was built around 
doing other races and, and training that would peak me for October to be in the absolute best shape possible. And so then, you know, you put all of your eggs into this goal, this thing that, that you that I felt like I could win it, you know, and I would fall short. So it wasn't like, man, I'm so happy I got second place. You know, I was so disappointed because I had been in the lead for however long and, and I blew up and I'm walking on the marathon and Dave Scott's passing me. And so each year I had to pick up the pieces and sort of like regroup and say, okay, you know, what can I do different now? What can, is there anything I can do different? Should I go back? You know, I mean, at some point you, you have to, you have to be very realistic and, and ask yourself, am I just beating my head against the wall for something that is completely out of the realm of what I have the capability of doing? Have I set my dream so far out there that, you know, I'm just being, uh, you know, I may as well be taking drugs because there's no way I'm going to ever achieve that. And, um, you know, each year I kept saying, no, I think I can do it. I think I can do it. And uh, finally, in, in 1989, it was, you know, this if I was going to go back, this would be Iron Man number seven. And at that point, you know, my family and friends, they were all saying, look, don't go back. You know what? <laughs> what's going to be different this year? You know, and so when I actually when I started 1989 in training in January, I had said forget it. I'm not going to Kona. But about two weeks into the training, you know, I could just feel this big island's like, Mark, you have to come back one more time. I'm like, God damn it, you know. And so I, I thought, I can't I can't go back there with the thing that I'm trying to achieve being the victory. Because if I don't win, it's just going to be the seventh disappointment. I have to go there with a different focus. And so I thought, what what has meaning for me? What can I do that would really invigorate me to train even maybe harder or longer or do something different to evolve my training? And the thing that really that I realized was that, you know what, I haven't had my best race. I don't know if my best race is going to be better than Dave Scott's or anybody else's, but I know that walking the marathon is not my best performance there. And so the entire year, I really focused on just evolving my training to get my swim and my bike and my run the best I possibly could. And then when I got to Kona, really the goal was just use Dave and his knowledge of pacing to just follow him and to just see see how he does it, you know, and to use that to, to hopefully have my best race. And, and when I got in the water that year and I was floating in Kailua Bay, I could, I just felt this like, peace, you know, that I had never felt before, because I knew that ultimately it really didn't matter whether I won or didn't win. I, I needed to get back to that real basic thing that I learned as a swimmer, that it's really about my performance and knowing that I gave the best that I could, and that I got the best out of me that I could. And so, you know, as you know, Dave and I were together on the swim, and we're together on the bike, and we're together every step of the marathon. And finally, I did pull away you know, making this very short version, but I did pull away on, on the last long uphill before town and, and went on to win. And it really was my best race that I could possibly have. And it ended up being enough to to be just that little bit extra better, a uh, little bit faster than Dave, 58 seconds faster in the end. And um, after the race, I was sitting around in my condo with my family and friends. And I was I was kind of, I was so excited and happy and we were all just like, couldn't believe it, you know, but at the same time, I was, I was a little cynical, like, why do I have to go through 
why did it have to be seven? Why couldn't it have been on number five or three or two or one? And then I, you know, I stopped for a second and I looked back on those races where I didn't win. And I realized those were the ones that taught me the things I needed to know so that when I actually had a good race, I could have, take a good race and turn it into the best race possible. So as an example, one, one of the things that happened um, in the earlier years, one year I was, I was leading the race off of the bike. I had a 12 and a half, this was in 1984, I had a 12 and a half minute lead over Dave Scott. And I ran, I was running through the town of Kona with this hum, humongous lead. And back then it was a 10K through town. It was, it was a, uh, you know, one way direction. And, you know, there's thousands of people cheering and, you know, I was high fiving and I'm like, I got this thing. You know, I felt so good in the beginning of the run. And then I, I ran up Polani Road and then got out onto the Queen Ka'ahumanu Highway where, you know, the bulk of the marathon takes place. And all of a sudden I go from this mass of humanity to stark lava. And I ran out onto that, that part of the run course and I felt like, every ounce of gas just dripped out of my engine. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be walking again. And this was with, this was with 20 miles to go in the marathon. I already knew that I wasn't gonna be able to run the whole way. And so, you know, I ran as long as I could. And then, you know, I was running out of gas and I was trying to get in calories, but it wasn't absorbing. And finally it did turn into walking and jogging and walking and jogging it. And then of course, Dave Scott did pass me. And at the point that he passed me, um, I knew that he would not be the first guy to pass me, that there would be others because I still had a long way to go. And so I, I, I was faced with a choice. What do I do? Do I drop out? Do I just walk in, you know, across the line, go to, you know, go sulk in my hotel room? Or is there a way that I can salvage this so that at least when I cross the line, there's something that I can be proud of? And I said, you know what? I'm in a situation where my body's working at about 20% of capacity. But I'm going to get 100% of that 20%. And so, you know, when I was walking, I didn't just slog. I walked as fast as I could. And then my energy would come back a little bit. And then I would jog as fast as I could until I couldn't hold that anymore. And then I would walk again, but as fast as I could. And in the end, I ended up finishing in fifth place. And uh, that year at the awards, five people were brought up on stage. And so I was the fifth person to be brought up. And I actually got this huge applause when I was brought up because people knew the struggle that I went through out there. That was a skill that served me in every one of the Ironman wins that I had. Because as you know, in an endurance event, there's times during the day where you feel great and there's times during the day where you can feel like shit, you know, and you feel like you can't keep going. And so, you know, like in 1989 with Dave Scott, there were points where I was I was feeling 100% and then it would start to fade and I'd feel like I was only working at 75% or 70%. And during those down moments, had I not had that experience in 1984, I might have given up because, you know, in your mind, you can say to yourself, unless I'm 100%, I'm not going to win, you know, but I, I knew that even at 70%, if I worked 100% of that 70, that maybe it'll turn around and I'll get back up to 100 again. And that's what would happen. I'd, I'd feel kind of energy going, but I'd still stay in it. I still stayed engaged. I still stayed positive. And then things would come back and then I would start to feel really good again. Had I not had that, that race in 84, I think I would have given up in, in at least one, if not all of those moments where my energy started to drop. 
And so, you know, in the end, you just never know what silver lining is going to come out of those tough days, those races that look like disasters, you know. And I, I tell the people that I coach, I say the only bad race is the one where you don't learn anything. And this goes for the races where you have lousy finishes, and it also goes for the races where you have great finishes. You know, if you don't learn something from that great finish, then it's been a waste of your time. Because that feeling of that great race will fade, but the, the lesson can be with you forever, whatever it is. And so that's why, you know, sport for me is so much more than just a finish and a place and a medal. You know, it's an experience and it's a journey and it's a, it's, it's a school of life and it's a place where everything you do in the future can be enriched because of something that you learned and gained through that challenge that you put yourself into. And standing on the start line of the 1989 race, which was a pivotal race for you in your Ironman career, did you feel any different standing on the start line in 1989 as opposed to any of the other Ironman World Championship races that you had started? Yeah, I did. You know, as I mentioned, I, I really felt a calm that I hadn't before because I I'd taken the pressure off of having uh, the meaning for the day being a win. And the second thing that I, that happened that year was that, uh, well, there's a couple things, actually. I One, I, I knew that I needed to sort of be able to go to the island of Hawaii and feel at home. Uh, it's As you know, it's a very powerful place. It's like no other spot on the planet. And, you know, you get off the plane and, and you just feel this energy of the island and you can feel it's alive and, and it can be very intimidating. You know, it's intense. And all the years before 1989, I... I, w I went there trying to sort of like push that energy away because I don't consider myself like intense, kind of like intense. I'm, I'm, I'm much more, I, I guess you'd say, calm. And like, you know, when I went to Nice, for example, I was like, wow, this is great. You know, I love this. Look at this blue powder blue water, you know, and it's like I just meshed with that energy so easy. I, I didn't mesh with that energy of the Big Island. I was fighting it. And so in 1989, I went there and... I went to a little place along the ocean and I, and I brought a couple kind of like offerings from my home and I, I just put it, put it there and I said, hey, Big Island, just let me be here with my strength and feel at home as who I am, you know, and to be accepted here, you know, and, and I could just feel it's like the island just welcomed me. You know, it's, it's sort of like you go into somebody's ha house you play by their rules. You know, you don't play by your rules. And I was coming into the house of the Big Island. I was trying to play by my rules. Well, no, you play by the rules of the Big Island. And the island just wants you to respect it and to embrace it, you know. Uh, and I really had this sense like I can, I can work with this energy. I don't have to fight it anymore. And even out on the marathon when Dave and I were running, you know, we're side by side. We're going for the world championship. We're on the on this big strip of lava that's very wide and we're bumping into each other because neither of us wants to give an inch, right? You know, so there's this very intense race that's going on. Every single step of the marathon, we are next to each other up until the last 10 minutes of the race. And I'm looking around at the lava going, wow, this is actually beautiful. You know, it's stark and it's black and it's, if you fell on it you cut yourself all up but it was beautiful it was like the most amazing natural 
painting frozen in time, you know, and it was the first time I looked around and thought, wow, this is amazing. And so the whole energy was was different. And, and then the, the, the last thing that that I, that I did that year that was different was that in all of the previous Ironmans, you know, I try to learn from the best. Dave Scott was the best. And so I saw how he got to the big island and he just got pumped up and he was like bigger than life and he was like a superhero and he was aggressive and he liked to control the race. And, you know, and my natural way of racing, I realized, is to have my strategies of how I might think it's going to unfold and how I will deal with each one of them should they come up. But then I'd like to just see how what really actually happens on race day and respond to it and figure it out during the event. The event. I don't feel the need to be in charge of the event or in charge of the race or to control the race. I just like to respond to how everything's going and figure out how am I going to just get that little bit extra that nobody else is today, which is very different than going there and going, ah, I, I'm a superhero, you know. And so all of those first six years, I was trying to be the superhero guy, which is completely not my natural way and so in 89 when i went to the big island that was also what i was asking like hey let me be here with my with my strength as who i am and my, one of my strengths is that it's very easy for me to just surrender to how the day unfolds and to manage it and deal with it and figure it out as it's happening and so that's what i did also on that day for the first time I, it's like i didn't care if i was in the lead or not i was just watching it unfold and waiting for the moment when I knew it was time to go. And that moment came, as you know, late in the marathon at the bottom of the last uphill before town. And, you know, at that, that late in the race, you're really running on fumes because you've been racing for eight hours. And so at the bottom of the hill, that this last long uphill where both Dave and I knew we were going to try and break each other, there was an aid station. And so conventional wisdom, the logic says, you know, you grab one last glass of sport drink, you guzzle it down, and then you take off and hope you make it to the finish before you run out. And so Dave actually sort of jostled in front of me. He reached over to grab his last glass of whatever he was drinking, and I started to come in to grab my last glass of Gatorade or whatever, and something just said, go. And it was like I was shot out of a can, and I pulled my hand back. I didn't grab anything, which was... A risk, right? You know, because all of the classic collapses have happened within sight of the finish line, you know, and I didn't want that to happen. But I pulled my hand back. I started sprinting. I And in the three or four seconds it took Dave to just reach over, grab his glass and look back, I put a gap on him. And you could see in the footage, his shoulders come up. He starts to rock. He's he's confused like somebody's pulling away from me in my turf in my territory the last part of the race where i'm stronger than everybody else and uh you know the, the gap continued to grow and, and as you know as we know it went on and it held and i made it to the finish line so can I just ask, Mark, were you almost in a bit of a trance at that point, um, in a way, because you had been banging into each other. You'd been step for step, stride for stride the whole way through the day. You were coming in to the last, what was it, eight to 10 minutes of the race. And for you to make that move then, was was Dave kind of, was he just caught off guard and that motion that you took then just caught him and that that magic that he had in his mind was gone because you were no longer beside him? Yeah, you know, when you're in a race that long, when you're when it's that intense and you're that focused because you're you're right next to this competitor, 
you really are in it kind of like an altered state, I guess you'd say, like your awareness and what you're tuned into and what you sense and take in is very, very different than when you're just sitting around, the, you know, sitting on the couch. And like I could, I didn't have to ask Dave how he was feeling. I could sense it. I could feel when he was strong. I could feel when he needed to back off. Uh, I could also feel that there was, I knew there was nothing I could do that would break him mentally. There was no surge or trick or anything that I could do that was going to make him give up. He was going to race it all the way to the last step and crossing that line. And that was, that was very intimidating, you know. And so, you know, so many things happened out there that day that sort of defy our, our, our normal model of reality. You know, like one of them was halfway through the marathon, um, Dave was starting to ratchet up the speed. You know, in, through town, it was super fast. And then we settled into more of a sustainable rhythm. And then about the half marathon point, he decided, okay, enough of this fun and games, you know, let me see if I can soften Mark up a little bit. And so he started surging and he would surge and back off and surge and back off. And finally, with about 10 miles to go or so, he he surged, uh, but he didn't back off. And we were running close to six minute pace. And I'm like, holy shit, this guy's going to run six minute pace for the closing 10 or 12 miles of this race. I can't do it. And I started to, I started to mentally just collapse you know and, and all those negative voices came in and it was like eh, yeah, Dave's too strong I can't do it he's gonna win I shouldn't have come back my legs are killing me I've got blisters I mean you know focusing on all the stuff that disengages me from staying in the game and and finally it got so hard to match his pace that my mind just went completely quiet you know thinking takes energy you know thoughts take energy and finally I just was so focused on just trying to not let him get that extra inch on me, start to make his break. My mind went quiet, and in that instant, uh, an image came back to me that I'd seen in a magazine two days before the race, and it was of a an Indian from central Mexico, the Huichol people, and his name was Don Jose, and he was in an, it was an advertisement in a magazine for a workshop that was going to be taking place in Mexico, teaching about the way of life of the Weichel people, very traditional lifestyle, very uh, spiritual, shamanic lifestyle that they live. Anyway, had a picture of Don Jose and a picture of Brant Secunda, his grandson. They were going to lead this workshop. And they both had this look on their face that was like a combination of being peaceful but powerful. And it really caught my attention because, you know, as an athlete, that's the magic space you're looking for when you're c competing, that space where you feel a sense of peace, like you're sort of like, hey, no matter what happens, I'm going to deal with it, that kind of peace. And yet at the same time, you want to have that sense of power of knowing that you've put in the training and that you're going to be able to extract every bit of potential out of your body, peaceful yet powerful. And I had never had both of those in the same place at the same time in Kona. You know, there'd been moments where I had felt kind of calm, but I also didn't feel strength. There might have been moments where I felt this strength, but I was struggling to hold on to it, you know. And so anyway, in that moment when my mind went quiet, Don Jose's image came back to me, and it was almost like he was just there with me floating, you know, and I was, I could just feel this life force coming into my body from that image of, of Don Jose. He was, he was 110 years old. I mean, that guy knew how to make it work, right? 110-year-old Weichel shaman. And so anyway, I could, I just felt this energy surging through me and it was like I was connected to him and to life and to the big island. And 
I could feel, you know, it's like, I could, feel, you know, it's like I was pumping the tire back up, you know, like, whoa, you know, and I knew that all of a sudden I go, oh my God, I can win this thing. But at the same time, my legs hurt so much that I didn't know if I could take another step. So, <laughs> so I was having this battle with myself. I know I can win, but I don't know if I can take another step. I know I can win, but I don't know if I can take another step, you know, and so it was just, it was that decision I had to make, like, Yes, I will put up with the pain. I will put up with how my legs feel because this is what I asked for. I asked to be in a position where I really feel like I can ha I can pull off a victory here. And it's within my grasp. I just have to now live what I've asked for. And that was still very hard. I still had 13 miles to go. There was still Dave Scott who was not going to give up. I still didn't know where the break was going to happen. And it took until, again, mile 24 and a half, another... 10 miles after that transition where all of a sudden I could feel everything come back. And um, so... What were you thinking when you made that break then? Do you remember, you know, thinking, shit, what have I done? He's going to catch me again now or we're on the uphill. Will I make it to the top? I never got my feet in before the last bit. I'm going to bonk crossing the finish line. He's going to beat me, you know, or was it, you know what, this is mine and I have it. Well, I, you know, I pulled away on the, that long uphill, but he was actually, he's one of the best downhill runners in the sport. And I knew that coming down Polani Road into town, I had to get to the very bottom of that hill before I made the left turn to then do the last little bit that leads to Ali'i into the finish. And if he caught me on that downhill, he was going to win. And so I went as hard as I could on the uphill. I went as hard as I could on that downhill without falling or crashing or cramping or, you know, whatever. And I was just, I was just holding my breath that he, I didn't, I didn't look back. I didn't want to know if he was close or far. And when I got to the bottom of the hill and made that left turn, that was the one moment of luxury I gave myself. I looked back and I couldn't see him. And then I knew absolutely that I was going to win the race. And I just stopped in the middle of the road and I just go, yes, <laughs> you know, because I knew there was now there was absolutely nothing that he could do to catch me and that I felt good enough. That I knew there was that I was going to be able to run all the way strong, all the way through the finish. So I had I had about, I don't know, five or six minutes of running, knowing that I was going to do it. And then when I made the turn onto Elite Drive, you know, I was coming down, and as you know, thousands of people cheering it, and people knew the journey, that it wasn't just one day, that it was seven years, and I was just filled with this joy and euphoria, and, you know, the tears were coming down my face, and I had this, the biggest smile, and, and uh, you know, across the line, and, you know, for, for months after the race, I would wake up the next morning with that feeling like, did I dream it? Um, no, it's real, you know, it, it just... I kept having to pinch myself like it was real. You really did it. You know, I really did it. And, you know, it wasn't just me, obviously. You know, there's like any any athlete in any sport, you know, getting to the start line, getting fit and healthy. It's a it's a group effort, even in an individual sport. You have your training partners, you have your coaches, you have your your family, your friends, the people that support you. And so it was it was not only a victory for me, but for everybody. And the celebrations afterwards, you weren't sitting in your hotel room wondering, oh, what did I do wrong this year? I'm never coming back to this island again. <laughs> were, were you like everybody else crossing the line saying, I'm never doing an Ironman again. And then five seconds later, I am totally coming back to defend my title next year. Well, the ironic thing is that uh, in the week before um, the race that year, uh, Michael Jordan 
announced his retirement, one his first of many, from basketball. And I was thinking, damn, if I could win the Ironman once, I would be I would be done. I would be I would quit. And so anyway, so I won and I crossed the line and, and I'm, you know, then I'm back in the, in the condo and I had just actually signed a, a six year um, a contract with with Nike. And so I had a commitment to race six years starting in 1989. So because of that contract, I kind of was obligated to actually keep racing and was actually very fortunate because it was the thing that was like, OK, I guess I got to come back and. As you know, it turned out pretty darn good, winning six six total out of six starts in those last six races. So, it's pretty it's pretty damn cool. Who would have guessed? You know, this little scrawny kid that started out as a mediocre swimmer, and then, you know, I'll never forget in um, in uh, eighth grade, I got a a C in in PE in physical education class from Mr. Hoskins, and uh, you know I. And at the time, I was I was swimming, right? And so I was more fit than any of these bozos in my class. But I got a friggin' C, and you know, miss, because I didn't kiss this guy's butt, you know. And so I just hope Mr. Hoskins saw me win that Ironman, because that, you know, like, dude, look at that. I'm surprised <laughs> you didn't write him a letter to tell him you were like a six-time Ironman world champion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, but the thing is, you know, you're not born a world champion. You got to develop. You got to you got to turn into it. You know, you got to work for it. And no matter what your what your world champion level is going to be, you got to work for it. And nobody's just given it. You know, certainly some people have more genetic tools than others, but we can all take what we have and optimize it. And, And that's really what that's really a great thing when you when you when you go for that, when you try to do that. So if you hadn't won in, and you nearly didn't go in 1989, we know that, but if you hadn't won in 1989 and you had quit the sport, long distance Ironman racing at that point, you still were racing Olympic distance and doing very well. What do you think you would have been doing for the rest of your life? You know, you were finished college. What would you have done? Well, I'd probably be serving hamburgers in a, you know, a <laughs> I don't know what I do. Uh, you know, I... I actually, I have a degree in biology, and so I probably would have gone back and done something with that, or maybe I would have I would have gotten into coaching a little bit earlier because I, I did learn a lot of you know what felt like important tools and had a lot of good experiences, um, you know, both at Olympic distance, obviously at long distance in Nice. Um, so I, you know, I, but it would have just been so different, you know. I th- that day changed, kind of changed everything, you know, it really. It set up what became six titles. Uh, it it changed something inside of me as far as really seeing the importance of sticking with something when you really do have a calling and a, and a feeling like I'm not complete with it yet. Because you just and and to then also know that it, you know life may turn out in the end or even greater than you imagine, but the road to get there is not going to be your ideal script. And, and that's that's really important right now, I think, just to keep reminding ourselves that, yeah, this is nobody's ideal script, but on some level, we're all learning things that are going to make us better in the end. What those lessons will be for each of us, who knows, but we will, we will make it through this, you know, like I made it through all those tough years in, in racing, and, you know, we will be enriched because of it and from it. Have you ever worked out, Mark, how many hours of, of training you did in those years from 1982 to 1989 across swim, bike and run? You know, I, I basically 
ended up kind of training about 15,000 um, miles a year, uh, swimming, cycling, and running. You know, that's quite a bit. Um, I was training close to 30 hours a week. You know, I had I had really good recovery. I also didn't train as, as, I did long stuff, but I didn't train quite as hard as some of the other guys as consistently. So I was able to keep up that fairly high volume and still recover. So, but about 15,000 miles a year, you know, it was, it was a lot. It was a big, big amount. And you've been in the sport quite a long time now. How have you seen the sport change uh, from, I suppose, an age group level and a professional level over those years? I'm not just talking about technology now. I'm talking about the athletes, maybe. And, and you don't have to name particular athletes or anything, but just in terms of how we've progressed as a, as a, a race in terms of triathlon. You know, one of the one of the biggest differences between, let's say, 1989 and 2019 or 2020 is that the the depth of uh, the athletes age group and pros is so much much higher the level the level as you go deeper is much higher like in the beginning you know there were there were those handful of guys and gals who were super fast and then it, it, the 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 level of performance fell way off and the same in age group you know there might be one or two tough 50 year old men or women and now there's you know there's there's hundreds and thousands and so the the overall level of fitness and, and experience and knowledge and performance is, is, you know, the fields are so deep compared to what they used to be. And that, that's one of the reasons why it's, um, you know, it just gets tougher and tougher to qualify for, let's say, Kona. That, that's probably the main thing, you know. And, and like in 1989, if you looked in, at the bike racks, you know, there were a handful of like super duper bikes and some of them looked like they got them out of a garage sale. You know, now every single bike in the rack is like super top notch, high performance, high profile, aerodynamic, everything, you know, just completely dialed in. So the obviously the technology is, is developed, too. There's just more knowledge now, though. You know, we, the sport is older, so we've kind of been able to flush out things that work in, in terms of training and things that don't work. And that knowledge is available to a lot of people either online or through through active coaches. And so it's actually a lot easier to get that good guidance to sort of uh, short, shorten that, that learning curve going from getting off the couch to doing a, an Olympic distance or a half Ironman or a full Ironman, you know, you can, because of this great knowledge that we have now. And what do you think are going to be the biggest changes in the future, which I think is a much harder question? Yeah, people ask that all the time. Um, you know, there will always be, I think, probably small advances in terms of the, the equipment that we have, probably still some of the area that will improve the most, I think, is going to be in nutrition, you know, developing um, ways to get calories in quicker than we do now, because like an Ironman, it, it's not about how fast you are. It's about how fast you can get your nutrition in. You know, if we could absorb 700 calories an hour, you could go six hours, you know, six and a half hours, but you can't because you, you just, you'd run out of gas if you went that fast. So I think the nutrition piece is going to continue to evolve much more than your bike frame or, you know, your running shoes or whatever. But, yeah, we should have been in Kona, but we weren't in Kona and we had great fun with the Ironman VR stuff. And there's a lot of reality racing or virtual racing happening now. Do you see that as something that's going to become more regular in the future, not just across Ironman, but across maybe other brands or other local or big races that might just jump on the whole VR side of things? Is it providing a platform to make triathlon more accessible 
to everybody and not just those who can race or have the time to do an Ironman? Yeah, I think the VR racing is um, it's it's here to stay. And I, I, I've seen this in a number of sports. Like, for example, um, you know, they have the, uh, the Catalina to Long Beach paddle race. They didn't have it this year, but everybody could do it virtually. And um, I have a couple buddies up here who weren't going to be able to make it down for Catalina this year, but they got to actually do a virtual Catalina race. And they said it was so cool to be able to sort of be a part of it, even though you weren't there doing it. And so, you know, I, I think the VR is definitely going to stick around. People will still still flock to um, in-person races, but absolutely VR is it's a great tool for being able to put together a, 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 what feels like a race effort from your own home. Mm, absolutely. And you mentioned that the, the kind of the challenge in Catalina, we had a very similar with our Galway Bay swim here. And that's how I ended up actually still being in the water because of a 13 kilometre swim challenge that couldn't happen this year. It went virtual. So instead of it happening over one day, loads of us were able to do it over the month of August. So, you know, it definitely opens up the opportunity for more people to experience sport at whatever level it is on, a, on an individual uh, perspective. In terms of Kona, um, what did you miss most this year aside from race day what did you miss most about not being on the island well i think one of the things i missed most was just being on the big island you know i i love the i love the feel of getting off the plane and uh, you take that first breath of air and, and it's it's warm and it's tropical and you can sm smell the salt and you look around and you can see the volcanoes and and the, the lush forest that just goes up the side of them and it, you know it's just such a such an amazing place to immerse yourself in. So I, I really missed just actually being on the big island. And of course I missed, you know, the international gathering. I mean, there's people that, you know, I only get to see once a year and we missed our, we missed our annual reunion. We missed our <laughs> annual party. Our and annual Guinness, Guinness and whiskey. Yeah. So, you know, it's, that part was, was sad. Of course, you know, the race, I missed that, but I, I think it's more just the missing that community, you mm. know, missing being with, with the folks that you only see that a few times a year, maybe once a year. So I look forward to that in 2021. And certainly, you know, if they can have that race next year, it's going to be the biggest triathlon party you have ever seen. Will um, Tommy Buzzcut be making an appearance next year in Kona? Uh, so explain to my listeners who Tommy Buzzcut is. <laughs> well, the, the backstory on... Tommy Buzzcut. Tommy Buzzcut is kind of like a character I, I made up out of my own little pea brain. Uh, Matt Lieto, one of the live announcers for, who uh, usually does a lot of the calls for the Facebook Live for Iron Man, he was going to do a, a takeoff on um, Between Two Ferns, which is an interview that Zach Galifianakis does with, you know, like Brad Pitt and all these famous people. And it's really very dry, very cutting humor that they, you know, banter back and forth. And Matt and I actually have that kind of a, an interview relationship. He's, done, he's interviewed me a number of times, and something wacky always comes out. I don't know what it is he brings out of me. And so anyway, he was going to call it Between Two Palms, you know, Hawaii, Between Two Palms, and he was going to do a little piece on each one of the daily shows. And something came up, and he wasn't able to put the time in to put it together. But anyway, he, he called me, and he said, hey, I, I'm going to be doing this idea with Iron Man. I think they're going to go for it. And so I... And I thought, I have an idea for a wacky character that he could interview. And so I put together just a little intro piece of Tommy Buzzcut, <laughs> this guy that's just got this 
wild voice, and you just never know what the hell's gonna come out of his face, out of his mouth, because he's like a little wacky, you know what I'm saying? Like, he doesn't even, most people, to get like this, they gotta have like 10 whiskeys, 10 beers, and then maybe they'll be sitting on their head and something funny will come out. Well, hell, all you gotta do is just say, Tommy Buzz caught in, wing, you know, wind the volume, away he goes, ladies and gentlemen. And so anyway, um, <laughs> so I, I put on this ridiculous hat and these sunglasses and I have these these seed lays and, and shell lays that I've collected over the years from Kona and I put on this little muscle shirt and I put together this this little five or six minute just monologue with Tommy Buzzcut and he loved it and then I got news like a day or two later that he wasn't going to be able to do the segment and so each day after watching the daily show I'd be sitting there you know the VR celebration week daily show and all of a sudden these wacky things would come in my head related to something that was said or shown on the, on the Daily Show. And so I went in my little studio and I put on my Tommy Buzzcut uh, outfit and away I went. And I ended up posting something each day throughout race week. And, and then I ended up the very last day, the last thing I, I did is I wrote a kind of a, a poem about uh, Kona and the Iron Man and, and what it means and what we're missing and dreaming of. And so anyway, you can you can see all of those on my YouTube channel. Um, I posted them also on my Facebook pages, Mark Allen Coaching Facebook page. And uh, they're just fun. You know, they're completely wacky. And some people were like, you're ruining your brand, man. You know, you're like more of a, and I'm like, I just love doing stuff that's, that's completely wacky sometimes because I am, it's so outlandish that people have to know that that's not me it's just like this character and it's fun you know so anyway yeah it's like this very serious amazing athlete once described as the world's fittest man also was espn's greatest endurance athlete of all time you've got like this serious title and serious um success and then the next thing it's like oh my god like, what is he doing? He's just this whole other persona. But maybe it was Tommy Buzzcott all the way on your shoulder, bringing you to Kona every year, making you go back. You just needed to let him out in the year you couldn't go to Kona. <laughs> I, I was sitting on that Mark's shoulder. I was going, come on, dude. You can do it. Yeah, come on, baby. Don't let that Dave Scott guy get you. He kicked your ass six years in a row now. Dude, take another Coca-Cola. Whatever. <laughs> Take a salt pill. You gotta. Don't give up, man. No, you cannot stop and go to the bathroom now. You gotta get to the damn finish line first, and then you can go. <laughs> uh. I actually can't breathe. <laughs> Do you know what could be very funny, Mark? Is you could record Tommy Buzzcut one-liners and sell them to people. You know, so Tommy Buzzcut, so we get up in the morning, you know, get out of bed, Tommy Buzzcut says, get out of bed, man, you're never going to be an Iron Man if you don't get out of bed. Um, before we finish up, I am nearly finished. I want to ask you just a couple of questions. Um, what has been the highlight of your career? I would say, you know, I, I, have, I have a number of highlights, obviously. I mean... 10 years winning in, re in Nice, you know, 10 victories in 10 races. To me, that's almost more mind-boggling than what I did in Kona because, you know, 10 different years, I beat 10 different guys and I never had a, a bad race there, which is, I don't know how I did that. Winning the first ITU World Championship in Avignon in 1989, that was, that was so meaningful to me because 
it was the first time that all of the best Olympic distance athletes had gotten together to compete against each other. And, um, and it was in France, you know, and I, and I have such a, a warm, loving experience at, at all my races in France. And so it was just, that had a lot of meaning, but I, you know, I guess, you know, kind of the top of the list would be my first and my final Ironman victories. The first, because it was so hard to keep going, you know, seven different years to come up with the reasons why I was going to go back and to pick myself up and to, you know, go at it one more time. And then the final victory in 1995, because it truly was the most difficult of my victories to win coming off of the bike, 13 and a half minutes behind Thomas Hellriegel, you know, just that was a huge amount of turf to have to make up in a marathon, 30 seconds a mile. And, um, what it, what it took for me to hold it together during that race was, was, you know, 10 times as, as difficult as it was to hold it together r- running next to Dave Scott. You know, at least with Dave, I, I knew where my competition was. I knew what was going on. And it seemed possible even when, it, when I felt myself fading. With Hell Regal, it seemed completely impossible until I came up on his shoulder at mile 23 of the marathon. So that, that one actually was what I consider to be my, my best Ironman ever simply because there were so many moments where I did want to give up. And, you know, the the greatest victories that we have are those ones that nobody will see. You know, on the on the race footage, it looked like I was just a metronome and I was in perfect control and that I had it completely planned out. And it was just I knew it was just going to be a matter of time. But that's bullshit. You know, I had no idea if I could if I could hold it together, if I could close that gap, if I could catch him. And there were so many moments where I was ready to go it's not worth it. And then I would have to, you know, pull myself back together, get my mind to be quiet and say, okay, let me just stay engaged. Let me just give it another mile, another step, another effort, you know, stick with it, just stick with it. And that was so, so hard. But in the end, it was also absolutely, completely fulfilling and gratifying to know that I, you know, I had a thousand moments where I wanted to quit and I had found a thousand and one reasons to keep going. Yeah, it's it's incredible um, to, to listen to you talking back about those very special moments and, and they're all pivotal really when you when you think about it and the results that you had. You know, it's it's a great privilege for me to be able to talk to you today. I know we joke and we mess about the Guinness and the whiskey when we do eventually, you know, catch up every couple of years. But um, no, it's 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 amazing to just listen to you and and the stories that you can tell and how you can bring all of the events to life for us. I have a couple of audience questions. Uh, I'm not going to keep you too much longer because we are after chatting for an age, and I probably could keep talking to you for another age, um, probably the length of an Ironman race and longer. Uh, so Deirdre Kelly in Galway asks, after you retired as a professional athlete, did you completely stop triathlon for any period of time or did you continue to swim, bike and run? Um, I, I kept working out, you know, but dropping the level way down. I, I haven't competed since I actually retired. Uh, you know, my last race was an Olympic distance race in Phuket, Thailand in 1996. Uh, finished second to Simon Lessing, another great athlete by 12 seconds. Uh, but anyway, I I knew it was time to walk away and to, you know, honor my body and say, look, you've asked a lot of it over the last 15 years. Now it's time to honor it by backing down the intensity, backing down the volume and to not push it like I, I had for so long. So 
I, I do something every day exercise wise and I have pretty much since I retired, but none of it is performance oriented. It's all, you know, life health focused for sure. She also wants to know, can you come to Ireland and take us for a coach to swim and then we'll go for Guinness afterwards? I'd love to. When, is, when are we going to do it? I think you should. you guys open up, I'm over there. I think you should come over for Ironman Ireland in August of 2021. We'd have some crack on the finish line in Ireland. Yeah, it'd be good fun. Jane Walsh asks, uh, and she's a psychologist here at NUI Galway, could you describe what was going through your head up to the point where you managed to drift ahead and beat Dave by 58 seconds? Was there ever a doubt in your mind that you wouldn't make it? I know we've kind of covered that already, but from a psychology side of things, you know, was there any point really that you didn't think you could make it? Oh, yeah, you know, for sure. Like I said, when he started surging, my, my, I don't know if you want to call it confidence, but my thought that I could stay with him started getting harder and harder to find. And then eventually it got to the point where I was like, I can't keep this up. And I, I really literally was ready to just go throw it in. And then I had that vision of Don Jose and then the whole race changed. And so, you know, it, that really showed me like it's so important where you place your focus and attention during an event. You know, if you place it on those negative thoughts, it's going to drag you down. And the impact is fairly quick. You know, in life, when we have negative thoughts, it might take a few weeks before the impact is seen. Like you, you kind of you wake up every day and you're like, I'm too tired. I don't want to train, but I go out and train anyway. And oh, I don't want to train. And then all of a sudden you get injured and you're like, oh, wait a minute, you know, two weeks later. Oh, actually, I want to train, but it takes you two weeks to get rid of the injury. And so, you know, positive and negative thoughts are slower impacting in, in your day to day life. But in a race, they can be almost immediate. So you're telling yourself you feel like shit and you want to quit. The impact is going to be really quick. But if your focus is placed in a very different place, the impact positively can also be just as quick. And so, you know, that image of Don Jose came back, that peace and that power, that sense that he had and feeling this energy, this life force, you know, it was like a light switch. All of a sudden I could feel everything just kind of go and ease and grace came back. And then I, all of a sudden I realized I was engaged in my breathing and my rhythm. And, you know, people ask, well, what, what were you thinking during the race? You know, and um, a lot of times... I wasn't thinking anything, you know, I was just, you, you get, you get absorbed in that rhythm of your breathing, like, you know, and, and it's soothing and it's, it's simple and it, it takes you away from being aware that your legs are hurting as much as they do, or that you are tired or that it's hot. You know, it's hot. You know, your legs are tired. You know that you still got a long ways to go, but you're, you're absorbed in this very simple thing. Sometimes I find myself counting one, two, one, two, one, two. I can only get to two. One, two, <laughs> one, two. You know, it wasn't like one, two, three, four. It was only one, two, you know, but very simple. And so, um, you know, that's sort of like maybe demystifying that champion's mindset a little bit. It's it's not a complicated thing and um, anybody can have it. It's just practicing those simple types of techniques or tools in your training. You know, you're always going to have a little spot in your workout where you're like, you know, you start whining. Find that quiet. Get back into your rhythm. You know, get get immersed in your breathing. Get immersed in that rhythm, whatever it is. And then you're fully engaged again. And that's ultimately when you have your best race, when you're as many moments as you can be just fully engaged in right here, right now. Not an hour down the road to the finish line. Not thinking about the flat tire you got or whatever it is. 
right here, right now, 100%. John Kniff, who is a big fan of the show, says, uh, what brings you motivation now as an athlete and coach after being in the sport for almost 40 years? Well, as a coach, it's real easy. You know, I love, I love helping guide people to find their best, to bring their best out, to um, evolve who they are as athletes and as people through the sport. You know, it's, it's a fun process. Um, and then as far as me personally, you know, again, my goal is to push that eventual slide in life as far out as I possibly can, you know, to just kind of, I guess you'd say sort of keep redefining what, what's possible at any given age. And so much of that, just like a champion's mindset, it's not complicated. It's just about consistently exercising, consistently taking care of yourself with, with enough sleep, with a good diet, with good thoughts, with being with community, you know, engaging each and every day with something positive that, that benefits your life. Mark, you have inspired so many athletes and people generally over the years, whether they've been spectators at a race, whether they've been partners of an athlete. Anybody who's heard your story has been hugely inspired. But I would love to know who inspires you or who inspired you during your career? Well, ironically, Dave Scott inspired me. You know, he was he was so tough and he was he was setting the bar for everybody. You know, we were trying to play catch up. And so that was that was really inspiring. You know, another guy that actually inspired me was Carlos Lopes because he won he won the gold medal in, in L.A. At, he was 37 or 38, you know, and set a world record in the 10K, I think, around that age. So anyway, at that time, I was much younger. Uh, well, I'm, whatever age I was in the early 20s, I thought, wow, you know, you can be in your 30s and, you know, still be at a world class level. It just that really reset my mindset uh, as far as how I approach my career, like, you know, I, I, I'm not going to peak at 27. I might peak at 37, you know, and that was actually how old I was that last year I won Ironman. And so that, that was a real inspiration for me as far as like, you know, push that, push that bar way out there. You know, life isn't over at 21 when you graduate college athletically, you know, it's, you're just beginning. Mark Allen, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. We've been chatting for ages and ages. A real pleasure to have you on the show and a real privilege. I really appreciate it. And it's our 40th episode. So what a special episode to release with Mr. Mark Allen. Well, we're part, all of us are part of the anniversary. Joanne Murphy, you have been one heck of an interviewer. And I am so honored that you had me and Marky Mark on the show because we both had a good time and we're going to have another cup of coffee. You want to join us? Oh, wait, no, it's uh, 10, it, it's 9.24 your time. It's 10.24. It's way past my bedtime. 10.24. Well, y'all take care, little girl, because we're going to have a good time next time. We're together. And Mark says, thank you, Tommy. That's enough of you, okay? So we'll see you. Ciao. <laughs> Tommy exits stage left. <laughs> thanks again for tuning in I hope you enjoyed this episode there certainly were some laughs along the way don't forget you can get in touch with any feedback or guest suggestions by emailing me on trytalkingsport at gmail.com I'd love to connect with you on social media you can find me on Facebook Twitter LinkedIn and on Instagram pop by and say hi and let me know what you think of the show but more importantly just message me to say hi if you need a bit of positivity on a damp and dreary day or you just want to get a friendly reply 
If you're new to Try Talking Sport, please do check out some of our previous episodes. You will be impressed and inspired by our wonderful guests. Until next time, wash your hands, stay safe, but most importantly, keep smiling and thanks for tuning in.